Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Recovery Radio, where we discuss substance abuse treatment and recovery. You can listen live at blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG radio. Please note that the views and opinions of our hosts and guests are not necessarily the views of OCG, nor is it meant to replace professional advice or the advice of your physician. And now, here's our show, Roach on Recovery, with your host, Orville Roach. Well, welcome, welcome to Roach on Recovery. This is Orville Roach, along with my producer and co-host pulling double duty, Chris Morales. 646-564-9909 is the number. 646-564-9909 is the number if you want to call in to speak to us or our guest. If you just want to listen to the show, you can go to our website, ocgworks.org. That's O-C-G-W-O-R-K-S dot org. And just click on the OCG Radio Live button. And you can also go to blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG Radio. You don't have to call in on the call-in line to listen unless that's your only means. Well, today is the first of a three-part series that we're doing to open up. Uh, called Daytop, the Birth and Evolution. Uh, we have a special guest today, Dr. David Deitch. Uh, he's a professor emeritus at the University of California at San Diego, Department of Psychiatry. Um, he is very well lettered. A lot of research has produced many systems for drug treatment for adults and adolescents, developed in prison therapeutic communities and is widely recognized nationally and internationally as an expert in the field. But what makes him extra special to us, especially for our topic, he's also the co-founder of Daytop Village. 
So at this time, I'd like to bring on, and let's get started, with Dr. David Deitz. Dr. Deitz, welcome. Well, thank you very much, Orville. It's a pleasure to be with you. And I have to commend the effort you're making with this uh, radio broadcast. Thank you very much. Yeah, indeed. So what what would you like to know about in terms of me and whatever contributions I've made or tried to make, at least? Sure. Well, you know, many of our listeners, uh, including my uh, humble co-host, may not be aware of who Dr. David Deitch is and the amount of, uh, like, I want to call street credibility you bring to the table. So if you can tell us a little about your background and what led you into this area. Well, okay. So, like many people in the field, I uh, was first a user and probably would count myself as one of the earliest uh, in the first wave of epidemic heroin use beginning in 1948 through 
couple of years. In 1961, there was an article in Life magazine about a place in California called Synanon. And someone clipped that article and sent it to me while I was living in New York. And my name was ringing and I was scared and I decided I'd go across the country to Santa Monica and I joined the Synanon group. If I'm not mistaken, I was number 30 on the population list at that time. So that was my first beginning, and some of the good things about that experience were uh, living drug-free and still doing that voluntarily, uh, learning a lot about myself, being excited about the sense of community that was present there. Correct. And then um, I was lucky enough to be a part of um, a group of seven guys selected by Diederich himself, uh, to, to, uh, which were referred to as the Young Lions. And he viewed us as a leadership potential young group that he wanted to see if he could coach himself. Participating as a young line, I was then sent with six other people to open the first Synanon house in Westport, Connecticut. And it was during those months while I was in Westport, Connecticut, that I also had time to begin to try to differentiate what was considered a taboo behavior by Diederich. Uh, right. For example, it was during this period of time when Synanon and Diederich began to see people even who went into second and third stage relapse. And so they kept insisting that more and more time needed to be – you needed more time in residential care, uh, and they began to increase the amount of stage one residential time. Right. Uh, and still relapses occurred, but rather than thinking of it as a problem with the, the whole idea of drug dependence, where relapse is a very current and present ben, you know, danger, they thought, well, we can handle this by no longer having reentry. So while I was at, at, at Westport, I was leading the facility. The guy that I had gone with, Jack Hurst, became uh, severely ill with a liver ailment. So uh, I took over pr very prematurely, I guess, but it was actually good because I was out of the main environment that produced as much dependence as it tried to end for people. Right, right. And then when the elimination of second and third stages occurred, we had people in the Westport facility in both second and third stage. And I didn't want to just abandon them by saying there's no way out of this unless you come back into residential care full time. So that rebellious streak got me pulled back to California, where from the director of the facility I was busted <laughs> and put in a dorm with 20 other guys. 
and put on the hustling crew in San Francisco. (laughs) (laughs) Using my talent to talk my way into things, they were building a very big facility in San Francisco called Tomales Bay. And I was assigned, along with a few other New York types, to go out and hustle everything imaginable. Furniture, carpentry, nails, electrical wiring, pipes, etc. And we did just that. And then I had a very complicated task because Diederich himself said, I want you to get me a Cadillac. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I thought, oh, God, man, how can I do that? You know, I'm begging for things for the community. How can I beg for a car that's a Cadillac for the guy who's the head of the organization? Right. So I couldn't do that successfully. And in the meantime, I had gotten married, and uh, they had naturally, the way these things go, The dependence has to be only on one figure, so if you're married, let's split the marriage up. So he sent me back to Westport to work with sponsors, and my wife was left in Santa Monica. (laughs) Now, this was done purposely? Oh, yes, of course it was done purposely. Mm. So I said, guess what? Uh, I need you to come back here. And then I got a call from a guy by the name of Bill Crawford, and he said, you're out of there. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you've asked for your wife to move back with you, and you didn't get permission to do that, so you're fired. You're out of there. Get your dollar wham and leave. (laughs) So I had to arrange being thrown out of Synanon in Westport, Connecticut with a dollar bill. And the guy who was in leadership that I was mentoring was a guy by the name of Ted Dibble. And he was literally tremulous at having to throw me out. So I had to show him how we did it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Packed my bag and out I went. And that was the Mm -hmm. beginning of uh, the new David. Uh, So the next steps were... Daytop, which had been built as a probation department research uh, project, utilizing out. Pardon. Let me ask you because Daytop as a Daytop as a milieu approach is described as a, a therapy community or TC for short. So, yeah, if you can if you can tell us a little bit how. So you talked a little bit about Synanon and. I'm presuming Synanon was the first TC in the United States? Is that correct? Uh, Yes, but Orville, it's important to understand that the day top that I helped co-found, we did not consider ourselves a therapeutic community. In fact, the earliest language on our stationery was Daytop Village, a humanizing community. Mm Mm-hmm. And it was only in 1964 or 5 when Efren Ramirez became the city of New York's drug czar, meaning he was made responsible for developing treatment throughout New York City. He had been recruited by Mayor Lindsay, 
And Ramirez really utilized Daytop as an example of what needs to occur and what could occur. He encouraged us and others to use the language therapeutic community because it would give more clout to the movement because therapeutic community was used in some mental health circles. Correct. Yeah. So we did adopt that language, but our and it, Daytop of Connecticut, which may not exist any longer, but it maintained the language humanizing community. It never so what adopted led, the language. Pardon? I see. I was saying, what led to the then the birth of Daytop Staten Island, Daytop Lodge? So Daytop Lodge is a research uh, project done by two people, the head of probation, a guy by the name of Joe Shelley for the second judicial district, Supreme Court district, which is Brooklyn, and a researcher by the name of Alex Basson. And they had been very taken by what they witnessed at uh, Synanon on a site visit they made there. Mm -hmm. And so it was their idea to replicate that but they kept having very bad, bad problems finding a stable leader of the group. So all of the people they initially hired ended up either getting drunk or running out the building or using drugs and relapsing. Right. I had been doing, since now I'm back in school, I was also doing group therapy twice a week with Dan Casriel. Not my own therapy, but serving with him as a co-therapist and leading groups for him. He asked me if I would be willing to take on running this place in Brooklyn, which had these 35 probationers living in a project in in town in Staten Island. Mm Mm-hmm. And that was the beginning of my doing that and then creating Daytop Village, uh, which the original uh, acronym was uh, Drug Addicts Treated on Probation. And we took that language and shaped it differently so that it became Drug Addiction Yields to Persuasion. Right. Uh, Actually, we... The original had two P's, positive persuasion, but we settled for the one P. (laughs) That's a little tidbit. No one knew that. Yeah. So there we were, and then the move as a resolution to community conflict with the neighbors around the Princess Bay, I mean, the, the original site, uh, protesting the original site being there, uh, there was a problem-solving group led by a psychiatrist who ran Staten Island Mental Health, a guy by the name of Dick Silberstein. And Dick Silberstein uh, was extremely uh, a positive source of community resolution And he then helped us move from that site to the Princess Bay site. Right. And William B. O'Brien was very helpful in helping to getting that site available to us. Mm -hmm. 
and was and so was then your... we become daytop we then are literally daytop village right okay and the story really begins there when there are no longer just probationers but also people who are volunteering for treatment and women right right the original project was all men and only on probation felony convictions attached to a probation opportunity right so perhaps you want some more you want to give me more direction on where you'd like me to go there somewhere around that time frame uh there's always been rumor and folklore about there occurred some kind of a split yeah in daytop so can you you talk to us a little bit about that split and then what what happened from there okay uh, by around 1965, we had both been growing uh, quickly and also began a series of street projects. Uh, th- these were drop-in centers where we were also doing community organizing. Now, at that per- point... I was a firm believer that while addiction was an individual's problem, part of that individual's problem occurred because of what was going on in the social fabric, meaning I considered addiction also a symptom of a very messed up social fabric. And we began doing lots of street work, block by block clubs, where we were, there were a number of activities. One activity was induction, where someone could be taken into Daytop from that neighborhood. Another was knocking on doors, getting people involved in thinking about their block and the issues that they were interested in seeing solved on their block. So these were small community meetings, block by block by block. As these things began to unfold, I became, if you will, increasingly directed at some of the political ugliness that was contributing to the addiction problem, meaning Mm -hmm. essentially poverty, rats, garbage, those sort of things. Mm -hmm. And some of our effort then was directed at trying to ameliorate those activities. Simultaneously, we were using the model to intervene in some very, really ugly Brooklyn gang wars between kids, particularly young kids, black, Italian, and Hispanic. And uh, the violence occurring among those gang kids directed at these opposite racial groups was essentially they're acting out their parents' racism. So we structured interventions, began to, again, do street work with each of the gangs, ultimately got them to collaborate, and we built a huge park ritual of dance and music and flags as a way of Mm -hmm. getting a resolution of peace treaty between the warring gangs. So clearly we were doing social action activities. 
Then, as you know, there was the war in Vietnam and a mm-hmm. strong sense of the injustice of that war. So I and many others in the DATOP leadership also were doing protests uh, against the war in Vietnam, guerrilla theater, uh, protest marches, th- those sort of activities. Mm-hmm. That began to paint me as a radical leftist. And some of the exuberance took place about being on the left in a, do you remember the name of the annual celebration? Are you referring to Gaudenzia? Yeah, to Gaudenzia. Yes. Mm -hmm. So during one of the Gaudenzias at Swan Lake, somebody raised a left fist and someone else wore a shirt made out of the flag. That created a furor, and it was directed at me as being this radical leftist, converting treatment into a political movement. Mm-hmm. That was the split. And I uh, left. Although the city of New York tried to prevent that, uh, it was uh, at that time we were also shaping Gaudenzia in Philadelphia. Right. And even Gaudenzia said, listen, we need your brain, but we can't afford your name. <laughs> <laughs> so I was the bad guy, the radical leftist. That even got me blacklisted in the Nixon administration for a while. Mm-hmm. And I and a core group uh, went off. We were living as a commune. We went off to San Francisco as a commune doing something called Concepts West. Uh, Incidentally, while I'm in Staten Island, I'm finishing up my undergraduate education. And then... uh, we, I get recruited along with the whole team that's with me to Chicago to the Illinois Drug Abuse Program. Right. And at that point, I made the head of training and education for the state of Illinois' drug abuse treatment project. And we begin doing training of folks and the therapeutic community model in a hospital with a live-in detox unit, and we begin to absorb methadone-using clients into the TC unit and demonstrate that we can do all of these things together in terms of helping people learn to live differently. Right. Let me let me ask you a question real quick just to summarize for our listeners. So when, when the split happened, yeah. you went... You went out of Daytop. Correct. Correct. Okay. So when you left from yeah. from, from a distance, then there appeared to have been some uh, like this. You said they were expanding significantly in in the mid '60s. So in that late '60s, early '70s period, you mentioned Swan Lake. So at some point, Swan Lake came into being. Parksville came into being. So there appeared to have been a huge expansion period. What what was going on at that time? What was evolving in, in, in treatment that really necessitated this tra- this expansion? Well, there was tremendous demand 
And uh, the, quote, therapeutic community movement, particularly in New York, was very strong. Uh, With Ramirez in leadership, and then Mitch Rosenthal shows up, and I introduce him to, to Ramirez. Ramirez hires him, and out of that exchange becomes the birth of Phoenix House. Then I'm helping shape Judy Denson Gerber's early career, and that begins the, the development of Odyssey. Right. So you have Odyssey and Samaritan and Phoenix, and Daytop was considered the senior. That right. was less true after I left. Uh, but while I was there, it was all on me to help all of these others grow into functioning independent units. Right. But Daytop in its early days did a lot to help each of those places succeed. In what ways? By training folks, uh, doing marathons with their leadership, having them move into our facilities while we vacated them. And when we would do the Gaudenzia retreats, everybody would leave New York City and go to Swan Lake. Uh, during that period, we, for example, we turned the uh, Princess Bay Lodge over to Judy Denson Gerber so that she mm-hmm. could have a community experience with the patients from her inpatient unit. Right. So there's no question that Daytop was very, very generously giving of itself to help this movement grow. Once the movement had sprouted, uh, it became the strongest treatment model on the East Coast. Mm-hmm. And it is as a result of that that you see rapid expansion. And inherent in that rapid expansion are a whole set of problems that slowly squeeze, if you will, much of the soul out of treatment as community or community as treatment. Right. And by that, I mean people began to try to use larger and larger facilities as a way of being more cost-effective. Well, the larger they became, yes, indeed, they became cost-effective, but it slowly eroded some of the fundamentals that were being used to bring about community. So, so there's a there's a couple of phrases I could use at this point. Uh, size does matter, and the larger you get, the more at risk you are. That right. time and person management will ultimately replace some key therapies: the process groups, the marathons, the probes. Slowly right. fell by the wayside, and slowly and unfortunately. Replacing that becomes the, quote, uh, encounter group, not the process group, but the encounter group. The uh, yelling and screaming without learning and doing more in-depth psychological work. And the other novelty of art and education and music uh, slowly gets stifled. 
and the activities that were then referred to in seminars as part of the re-education of people, the reshaping of possibilities in, in their life, opening up vistas of understanding and awareness and thinking all began to get stilted. So sized, yes, programs grew large and cumbersome. And while they were treating many people, uh, the people who you would pay attention to were only the people who stuck around. Right. And many of the others were coming and leaving, and you didn't see them. So you thought you were successful because you're only looking at the people who stayed. Right. It wasn't until years later that people began to reflect, wait a minute, what is it we don't know yet? Why is it that we're losing so many people? Mm-hmm. What is it that's failing to attract them to staying for the duration that seems to help them make recovery possible. That's a longer story, Orville. Yes, you've uh, you've written on that. I've seen I've seen that. Um, we're going to take a quick break. Sure. Uh, and we'll and we'll we'll come back on the other side and continue our interview with uh, with Dr. Deitch. We'll be right back. The Children's Health Council in Palo Alto has been serving children, youth, and teens in San Mateo and Santa Clara counties, as well as the greater San Francisco Bay Area, for over 60 years. The goal of the agency is to remove barriers to learning, regardless of language, location, learning style, or ability to pay. At CHC, we specialize in ADHD, learning differences, anxiety and depression, and autism through our center, two schools, and community clinic. No matter how big or small the issue is, just call us and we'll help you navigate your child's journey together. Visit our website at www.chconline.org or call us at area code 650-688-3625. Again, that's area code 650-688-3625. At CHC, we're here for you. And CHC, estamos aquí para usted. You hear that? What you won't do, you do for love. You'll try anything, but you won't give up. That's the attitude you need to have in recovery. You've got to love or learn to love yourself first. You've got to be willing to try anything that will help you succeed. And most importantly, you can never give up. Visit us at ocgworks.org. OCG, where hope grows. What you won't do, do for love. You try everything, but you don't give up. In my world, only you. 
Welcome back to Rochon Recovery. Uh, 646-564-9909 is the number if you want to call in. Special guest, Dr. David Deitch, uh, we're interviewing today. Dr. Deitch, um, you wrote an interesting yeah. paper uh, that I think uh, my producer, who is uh, in the midst of his addiction studies, would be very interested to know. Um has a very interesting title. It's called The End of the Beginning, Dilemmas of the Paraprofessional and Current Drug Abuse Treatment. Now, I'm going to ask you if you can just talk a little bit about that because I think it should be required reading for executives in the field, paraprofessionals in the field. Um, but the, the amazing thing about it that I was talking to the producer about beforehand was that it was written in 1974 yeah. and how relative it is today still 40 years that's later. interesting yeah. well um, thank you very much it's a nice compliment overall. Uh, there are many other uh, publications of mine uh, which try to address Many of the dilemmas in treatment and in the performance of trying to behave as a helper or a change agent uh, in the field. Sadly, the language change agent has fallen by the wayside, but that was a transitional social definition of great value, great use to people in recovery. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it, it became a, a a way of defining yourself that gave you social status and social role that had meaning attached to it as a way of helping reinforce your recovery. Uh, I, um, <laughs> I think... That was the end of the beginning, and what we may be seeing now is the end of it right. uh, as we knew it uh, in terms right. of these approaches, uh, which will slowly lose support and funding and both in some respect, the very notion of having to turn all this over to the uh, New Care Act, sometimes referred to as Obamacare, uh, as a way of trying to support efforts at treatment through insurance mechanisms, are essentially uh, going to destroy the fabric of community as a necessary feature of, of treatment. Correct. Um, what's occurring then is the third-party administrators who get the contracts relevant to carrying forward with insurance uh, are looking at statistical norms and concluding that any addiction problem needs first to be treated in the most benign and 
a limited way, meaning outpatient. Uh, and if not drug-free, then outpatient and with the help of ancillary drugs, particularly with opiate addiction. Uh, so that when they do permit residential care, uh, a chance for somebody to grab, you know, take their breath and uh, sit down and try to take stock without having to cope with the other things out there. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the duration of care and under those circumstances is being limited to less and less time. Well, in less and less time, the difficulty in creating community as an intervention and as a change process uh, doesn't get formed. So the, the treatment as we know it or knew it probably does need to change considerably or incorporate more contemporary approaches. But the greater danger is that there won't be any opportunity to create community to give someone right. that first initial support. That, to me, is a very dangerous uh, precedent. And it's the way insurance markets work. That's correct. Yeah. Why don't we t Why don't we take a call? Um, sure. Let's bring on Neil calling from Fresno. Neil, you're on Roach on Recovery with Dr. David Deitch. Welcome. Hello. Hi, David. This is Neil Krosky. How are you? All right, Neil. What a wonderful hearing. Your voice, great. Same here, sir. I've been listening to your insight on... Uh, recovery and where you've come from, and uh, I just want to thank you for the opportunity you allowed me to come to the West Coast and, you know, evolve myself in recovery out here with some, some people. It's just always been a great experience, and I'm so grateful to hear you guys talk and discuss part of where I come from. Okay, Neil, good to hear your voice. Same here, David. I'm listening to the it's just like bouncing back. You know how this social media thing is now. So I'm really having uh -huh. difficulties echoing over here, and I'm trying to, to follow up. But i got to call in. I just want to let you know I'm all ears to be aware, to be alive. All right, my friend. All right. Okay. You guys go Take ahead. I'm listening. Deal. I'm just loving it. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, okay. Thanks, Neil. All right. So... Yes. The last thing I'd like to ask you, and this is probably uh, a, a real heavyweight, um, looking back, and, and, and you bring a lot of years of experience to the table, giving everything that you, you've learned, developed, written, researched, um, and you use the term the community, and I'm just going to add you know, the therapeutic community to that, is there anything you would do differently in designing and implementing this treatment approach that we've been talking about? Uh, yeah, there, there, I would have, I would, yes, I certainly wish that I knew what I know. I know now I wish I knew it back then. Mm -hmm. Certainly I intuited the necessity of uh, the intellectual category and the, uh, a development of the seminar activities 
as critical, and we tried to push that. But I began to see that get sacrificed also uh, when staff members were no longer challenging themselves to continue to grow intellectually. Mm-hmm. So it, the other thing that began to take place was the overuse of the indictment and attack activity and the underuse of uh, the processing activity. Uh, the, the ability to confront doesn't mean, you know, destroy or, you know, negate the other person. Uh, but that's slowly what begins to happen. The other thing that I wish I had been much more aware of is that the model itself, when it's hierarchical, and has an unusual amount of control over the membership, inevitably there are within that element some closet fascists. And the closet fascist who functions good, who is a good functioner, can also be a very destructive agent by wanting too much control and authority. Now, those are issues of maturity as well, and Mm -hmm. with age comes some maturity that may help people tone down some of that proclivity. Uh, I wish I had been um, more patient with some folks. I always viewed myself as being patient. But I I could see a sense of impatience. Um, I'm very interested to hear how how our common ground is functioning today. It sounds like you're doing some remarkable things. Even the language, our common ground, what a sensible concept. Yes, we've um, of course we've we've taken the the daytime. Uh, model, and uh, at least in our in our terms, in our view, modernize the TC by, as you said, incorporating some contemporary models, some best practices, um, in into the treatment model. Uh, we moved to. I think this speaks to a little bit about what you said about um, uh, involving the process more. Uh, we moved to a more strength-based model. Um, I, I once. We, we want to ask the question, and, and this is before we uh, change over to our common ground. If a person was in treatment six months and they were discharging out, and we asked them, what have you learned about yourself? And we said, well, the answer would most likely be, well, I learned that I was lazy and had an uncaring attitude. And I said, that is not what we want them to say. <laughs> so that is not what we want them to say. So yeah, yeah. There it you appeared go. that it appeared that ninety percent of the emphasis was on responding to the negative behavior and the negative attitudes, and ten percent was left to uh, positive reinforcement. And we wanted to switch that around. Yeah, uh, and of course, for you. there was you know there was fear, there was concern. Um, would clients be getting away with things, and so on and so forth? And 
you know, we, we didn't believe that would be the case. We, we, we felt the clients would respond more favorably if you focused on their positive attributes and didn't mean that you wouldn't address negative attitudes or behaviors. So yeah, that's the approach yeah, that we wanted to convert to. Yeah. And it has been successful. Interesting. Um, I don't know if you know much about the mental health version of therapeutic community. Uh, the, the people who did that uh, are often, you, you can think of one name in particular, Maxwell Jones, mm-hmm. who was a Scottish psychiatrist working in Britain uh, at the end of World War II at Tavistock Hospital. And some of those process groups are known as Tavistock groups, but Maxwell Jones converted a whole large unit in a psychiatric setting and created a very, very horizontal framework uh, that he referred to as therapeutic community, that all decisions were made by all members about all things, and that the process of taking responsibility about making decisions and those decisions would affect your life began to promote real change among war-traumatized veterans. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I don't know if this is... The Europeans yours. often refer to that as the democratic model and refer to what happened in America as the hierarchical model. Right. Now, ha- yeah. has it been your, ex- David, has it been your experience um, that, well, let me rephrase that. It has been our experience that one of the most difficult things we have found is to, in terms of training staff, is to allow the the community to do exactly what you just said, take responsibility uh-huh. for itself. Yeah. Um, in, instead of being in the clutches and the grips of the, quote, in quotes, the staff. Yeah, the authoritarian staff. Exactly. Yeah. So, when the, so the question comes yeah. up, well, the community is not working, and they don't realize that it's not working because you are you have your clutches all over it. You're not allowing the community to do what it's supposed to do. Yeah. I found that to be the most difficult and continuous training thing about the therapeutic community. Yeah, no, indeed. You're breathing life into it that way. Right. Yeah. There is a chapter that I most recently did that can be found in the Addiction uh, Medicine Theory and Practice, the two volumes put out in 2012. Uh, And the editor is the chief psychiatrist uh, at a university, uh, his name is Noli. And in that second volume, I attempt to address what has indeed occurred and what has been, what are some of the ingredients of value to be preserved, uh, as well as what were some of the mistakes, both in terms of momentum without more serious examination. Mm -hmm. So it's really an aspect of the recovery movement still unfolding. 
You can read that in that second volume. It's, uh, yeah, Step Along the Recovery Momentum uh, uh, Therapeutic Community. Uh, It's uh, still an unfolding activity. The the other thing that you have um, produced has to do with looking at um, addiction from a different perspective in terms of how what is what is happening in the brain as a person progresses through not only their their addiction but their recovery. Yeah, there's some videos that I've done about the brain and recovery. Right. Um. Yeah. That has, in particular, been a very uh, focused interest of mine in the last 20 years. Right. (laughs) And I'm still doing the, um, I don't know if you know that many years ago I created something called the Center for Criminality and Addiction Research Training and Application, the acronym being CCARTA. Uh, of course we know that, still... David. Of course we know. <laughs> so that's still going on. Uh, so it is, it is slowly winding down. Okay. But I'll be running all over the state uh, the next few months uh, doing three-day trainings in the different prisons, trying to get them to think about how how we can work collaboratively and produce some opportunities for positive change. Well, as we close out here, um, that leads me to my last question, uh, which is um, in the late 90s, you started working on uh, creating the in-prison therapeutic communities. Yeah. And can can you just tell us a little bit about how now looking back, you know, 15 years plus, how that has, if you, if you look back and assess it and analyze its success or, or lack thereof, what would, it, what would that be? Okay, so first, uh, in a way, what happened in the 90s and the use of therapeutic communities in prison settings really rescued the name therapeutic community from ignominy. Much of what was going on elsewhere was beginning to have grave doubt about therapeutic community treatment. And what began to occur is outcome data of using therapeutic communities in prison settings that showed a significant improvement in in not going back to custody. now, if you may recall, I don't know if you, you remember Ronnie Williams, no, who created something called Staying Out. Ronnie was one of the first to uh, do therapeutic community in prison in New York. And they began to show very impressive data with a population that no one had been able to help with not the people not going back to custody so quickly, particularly within the first year, the usual 60% that return or more. Mm-hmm. And so they demonstrated that it could be done, and then it got picked up again in, in um, Delaware 
with a set of projects that also demonstrated it. And then in California, uh, in one prison, actually two. Now, what happened is when they looked at that same population two years out, it was not looking as good as it did one year out. Mm -hmm. And when they looked at it at three years out, it looked almost as bad as the failure rate in those who didn't get into treatment uh, at all, meaning that slowly relapses were occurring over a period of three years. Now, from Mm -hmm. one perspective, that's already a success story because Mm -hmm. it means that the treatment has paid for itself by the person not going back to custody so quickly, meaning a, a fiscal savings. Right. But as a result of looking at that, they began to understand that an element was needed to help it. And that was post-prison recovery opportunity, i.e. transitional treatment or transitional community as a way of supporting and integrating the gains that were made while they were in custody treatment. That then showed significant lasting effects. That data is still there, and it actually rescued even the language therapeutic community. Mm -hmm. However, in the last five years, uh, it began to be questioned, or more organized practices called evidence-based practice uh, began to be preferred. And particularly departments of corrections, they love the new language. The Mm. question is, will they sustain and do with the same degree of quality that they did initially five years later? And the answer to that is very much like the insurance industry. They begin to look at competitive bidding and they begin to award bids, not on quality, but on price. And then what happens is the length of duration in the in-custody treatment starts getting shortened. The staff gets diluted, and the romance about it begins to wane. And sure right. enough, California being a perfect example, when the fiscal crisis hit, all those treatment activities ended. After a 10-year climb of growth and significant outcomes, they just ended. They are now getting back there. The question is, what duration of time a person will be permitted in the units, what kind of community is possible to be created, and how much support in aftercare or continuing support care will be afforded them upon release. So the formula, if you wish, is dedicated cell block, dedicated work assignment, and dedicated yard time with enough time in program, meaning uh, six months or more, followed by aftercare gives you your best outcome data. And God willing, we'll be able to reignite that. Well, uh, let, me ask you, let me ask you a very controversial question. 
Sure. Okay, because rumor had it that part of the difficulty in 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 doing that model in in the in the prison or maybe any model was the pushback from the the correctional officers union. Uh yeah, that was rumored. I I must say that in California the correctional officers were more supportive of this than in opposition of it. Okay. I mean that frankly. Uh, mm-hmm. The stereotype about the correctional officer, the guard, being a knuckle-dragger should mm-hmm. no longer exist, although it does in some quarters. Right. Uh, these guys have been real partners in the treatment effort, guys and women. Right. Absolutely. Okay. Well, that definitely clears up that rumor. And there's some interesting data, again, that I did, some research that we did, I don't know, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, about the quality of life for guards who worked in cell blocks that had therapeutic communities. And it demonstrated that their quality of life was considerably better than their counterparts who were not working in cell blocks with therapeutic communities. Right. How about that? That's interesting. <laughs> yeah. Well, so there you go, my friend. Yes. Dr. Deitch, uh, we want to thank you very much for being You're a guest on well. our show. And we also hope that you can come back sometime in the future when we're discussing a topic that falls, uh, that we believe falls right within your expertise. And I'm happy IPDF. to do that. Trigger, just trigger me. Just email me. Uh, just, just to share with you, a few years back, I went back to help Mitch Rosenthal and the Phoenix House organization, and so I assumed the duties as chief clinical officer. And one of the things I did with the entire network nationwide, all 104 units, I'd get them plugged in and like you're doing on this call. It mm-hmm. wasn't a radio broadcast. I convened and I organized a National Scientific Advisory Committee, and each mm-hmm. month a different member of that committee was on a conference call with all those people in leadership across the country. Right. It was a wonderful way to share new information and discuss ideas. So you're on to something really very good, Orville. You should be commended. Thank you. And Not indeed. just me. It's, it's LCG, but thank you. Yes, indeed. So, ladies and gentlemen, that's Dr. David Deitch. Um, we're going to have him back. We want to thank him again for being a guest on our show. And uh, Dr. Deitch, all the best to you. And uh, once again, thanks. Thanks for coming on. Indeed, and stay strong. Okay. Thank you. It's been a privilege. Bye. Okay. That was very informative. And uh, why don't we, Mr. Producer, take a uh, break? We're at the bottom or top? 
looks like we're, I guess uh, this would be the top now. Yeah, we're at the top of the hour. Let's take a short break um, and come back and we'll uh, summarize. Look forward to it. Okay. The Latino Commission Drug and Alcohol Treatment Services in South San Francisco was organized and incorporated in early 1991 and going on 22 years of providing services to our community. The Latino Commission, also known as TLC, would like to offer our services to those struggling with a substance use disorder. We have residential facilities for men, women, mothers and children, outpatient programs, transitional and SLE homes to assist and promote a successful recovery for individuals. We at the Latino Commission provide educational services on self-esteem, assertiveness, life management, coping skills, anger management, limits and boundaries, and other various subjects. The Latino Commission, restoring people holistically in an environment of love and understanding that represents our culture, improving quality of life. Yeah. 
We're back. We're back in action. What a what an interesting uh, segment there, huh? Yep. A wealth of knowledge that Dr. Deitch brought to the table and taught us some things we didn't know about Daytop Shoot, and we work for the organization. Uh, I didn't know about that last P. They have the second P in Daytop? Positive persuade. Imagine that, though, that back in the day, the second P being positive and really where recovery and what we're trying to preach now with you know, Probably putting a more positive yeah. spin on things, yeah. and and uh, so that was thought of long, long ago. It's very interesting to, to that you note that, that here we are. It's funny how things cycle around. Right, right. And uh, it, it appears things got off track from what the original, the intended purpose, the thought, yeah, the thought was. Um, and I always felt that. I mean, in right. the way that I was trained and the people who trained me, it was it was never a you know a negative, humiliating you know type you know thing. It was it's not always, supposed to beat you down. It's supposed no. to kind of lift you yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that it's a it's a process in itself to train people out of that who may have experienced that in their experiences or, or sure. wherever they've come from to to work with the organization. Um, but that that was an interesting note. Also, uh, the the meaning of the acronym, right? You know, there's been many, you know, guesses. I mean, I've known the the final meaning, but uh, when right. you mentioned about the the P standing for probationer, uh, that was different. Yeah, um, I hadn't heard that either. Yeah, but uh, officially, uh, for everyone listening, it's it, there's there's two there's, there was two uh, different meanings to the acronym DATOP. So drug addicts yield to persuasion or drug addicts yield to with the O standing for outer persuasion. But the original one was drug addicts yield to persuasion. And in the mold of the non strength based approach, the early two thousands, you've got do as you're told or pack. <laughs> <laughs> well which many came accustomed to. Well and and here's the reason behind that. Especially in the 80s, you know, in mid to late 80s, when you had close to 2,000 people on the waiting list, um, there was no time for uh, nonsense, indecision, or I'm not sure if I'm ready. You know, I, I don't know if I want to be here. Sure. Be- before the second word got out of your mouth, you were being escorted. Yeah. You know, back sure. back to the dorm, having your bags packed for you. Um, I mean, it's like you had your own personal valet, and the, you know the van was pulled up, and you know doors were swung open, and ready to go. You were, you were getting the limo ride because there was someone literally and figuratively dying on the streets to to get in. That and that trend certainly continued, at least in its thought or theory, in the early 2000s, because you definitely felt when you were in the community, maybe not doing what you were supposed to be doing, disrespecting staff or you know, just not applying yourself the way you should be applying yourself, that the message sent to you over and over and over was you are in a bed right now that somebody could be using to save their life. Mm -hmm. So if you're not going to use it for what its intended purpose is, then you need to make room for somebody who is going to use it for that intended purpose. And so, yeah, I think that that's very interesting as well. And that's, that's even more, it's, again, come back full circle because there was a time of largesse where where, you know, people would abuse the privilege of, of having a bed in treatment, um, you know, especially 
I can only compare New York and California. Most of the people in California at the, at the time it was criminal justice coming out of coming out of the jails into treatment, and so you don't know if someone's just trying to get out of jail or they're really you know ready to turn their lives around. But obviously, after a couple of days, you can source that out. Um, and you let them know. You know, I always say I don't care why you arrive to the front doors as long as while you're here you change your motivation. So if your motivation was just getting out of jail, that's fine. You know, as long as at some point during this process it changes to, you know what, I really do need to get my act together. Right, right. Now, you I don't know if you heard, there was a, a point in the interview when we were talking about one of the papers that he wrote um, titled The End of the Beginning and the dilemmas of the paraprofessional and current drug abuse treatment. And and I said it's you know, it should be required reading and I'm gonna tell you, Mr. Producer, you read this because it is an excellent article and when you read it, you're gonna be just nodding your head at some of the stuff that's in there, like, Yep, this happens, yep, I saw this, yep, I know what that is. And as I said to him, it's amazing that it was written forty years ago. And still completely applicable we to this de- day. And we deal with this stuff today. Right. Right. We, I look forward to reading it. We deal with it today. So I purposely held it back from you. Okay. And, and, and hid it from you. <laughs> okay. So that you could uh, you could wait till after we interviewed it so you can read it. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I look forward to it. And that is really interesting, as you say, uh, in going through the reading. That's something could be written about, uh, you know, up to 30, 40 years ago and still be applicable to this very minute and have somebody read it who is from the quote-unquote new age or new era and see that back in the day when things were being conceptualized that they are still put in practice to, to this minute, to a, lot, a minute. A lot of forethought. Um, 646-564-9909 is the number if you want to call in. Again, 646-564-9909. Um, we're on the uh, back end of our interview with Dr. David Deitch and just talking about and summarizing some of the things he brought up. Um, he mentioned, I asked him about the split in, in Daytop in the mid-60s. You know, a lot of uh, rumor and innuendo about that. And it was originally, so it was news that the split involved him leaving Daytop versus what was originally thought and rumored, at least during my time back in New York, about that it was others who splintered off and started uh, something else, and it turns out that it was he who splintered off and started something else out here in San Francisco. So that was, again, something new that we we learned. He also spoke about um, when the Monsignor... He and the Monsignor got together, and that was actually the official starting of Daytop Village. And what's what's important about that is, you know, Mr. Producer, you can look up on my wall. You see that poster up there uh, from Staten Island. Does it say Almanac? Yeah, Staten Island Almanac, which shows pictures of those community events that he was talking about. Absolutely. Um, so, all right, let's go to the phones. Um, we have Catherine, looks like, calling from New York. Catherine, welcome to Roach on Recovery. Hi, how are you? Good, how are you? Thanks for calling. I'm okay. You're welcome. Um, I wanted to know, I had to step away. Did Mr. Dietrich meet, Dr. Dietrich, I'm sorry, did he meet uh, Monsignor, and when did they start working together, if they did? Yes, 
he they did meet and they started working together in 1965. Mm-hmm. And that's 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 when they co-founded Daytop Village. And I'm emphasizing the village because there's actually a difference between a back then between Daytop and Daytop Village. Right. Daytop was the the lodge that was in Staten Island, and then when they formally incorporated as an entity is when it became Daytop Village, and that's what the Monsignor and Dr. Deitch did together. Was that so, Mayor Lindsay that said strawberries would grow in the streets before he allowed addicts to sell on the streets? Or, um, no. The no, uh, no, and you you remember Mayor John Lindsay? Do I remember him? Yes. I'm 65. Yes, I do remember him. Okay. Well, okay. I, I was very young when his name was being bandied about. But, no, he was actually in favor of it okay. was uh it was either um and and I'm not familiar with the with who was before him or who came right after him, but there mm-hmm. was a mayor I think it was the mayor before him that okay. kind of poo pooed you know drug treatment, and he's the one who okay. made the comment about there'll be strawberries growing on Park Avenue before you can cure right. heroin addicts. right another thing you said that um upon leaving treatment and our common ground, you would ask people, what did they learn? Well, when we were looking at how to enhance the, our treatment approach, one of the questions that we asked ourselves is when a client leaves, okay, and if they ask themselves or we ask them, okay, what have you learned about yourself after six months? Mm-hmm. We said the answer would probably be that they would say, well, I learned that I was lazy and had a non-caring attitude. Okay. And and you know how, um, you know how in morning meeting and 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 whatnot that and that's like a familiar familiar phrase. It's common for you to say. Yeah. So you know it's like almost. You know, Every pull up yeah. is followed by that phrase. Yeah. Um, Anytime you're booked, you could be booked for anything, and the feedback is, well, you got a lazy and non caring attitude. Right. And I used to tell people, can you be a little bit more creative? Um, okay. But. What we wanted people to be able to say when they left was, I mean, obviously, yes, people come in, they have characteristics of laziness, of non-caring. We understand that. But when you leave and when you're asked that question, and we want you to be able to say something positive about yourself. Right. Um, When I was in Parksville in 1996 through 97, my counselor was Alan Benjamin. And upon mm-hmm. leaving, Alan Benjamin would have a group with us. Right. And in that group, he would tell us what would cause us to relapse. And when knowing what we what would what would cause us to relapse taught us what we learned in treatment, what to value and how important relapse was and how important is the person or the thing that could cause you to relapse. Mm-hmm. So therefore, now, when you go out into the world, you're going to be watching out for that. Mine was my children. Mm-hmm. So I mm-hmm. had to, like, make sure they didn't run over me, make sure that I just didn't, you know, allow them to do the things that I did when I was using. So I think, you know, what the way Alan did it, it was a great tool to use. 
I'm not saying the way y'all did it was wrong, but he mm-hmm. was a dynamite counselor, and he just he got to know his clients so well that he knew what would cause each one of us to relapse, and we build on that. So what I learned was that my kids, when I got ready for them to tell me what I did to them, I had to be ready and be able to deal with what they said because if I couldn't, it could cause a relapse. Did you get it? Yeah, I got it. Okay. It's a pleasure meeting you and talking to you. And I just question. Okay. I want to, more of a comment in regards okay. to Alan Benjamin, in regards to that Mr. Alan Benjamin. Yes. I want to give you, I want to give you a tidbit. It's either myself, if my memory serves me, and, and Alan, he may be listening, he may, he can correct me if I'm wrong. It's either myself, I'm almost certain it was me, that did his initial interview. Wow, that's deep. At Swan, at Swan Lake. If it wasn't me, it would, have been, it, would have, it would have been Neil Krosky, but I'm almost certain I'm the one that did it. And also, here's another tidbit, and I don't know if he has him back now. I can't tell, but when he came in to treatment, he came in with dreadlocks. No, he don't have them no more. Okay. Well, I know he, well, he cut them. He, well, he cut them. <laughs> they, they were, he cut them. Well, you know, I'm, shortly laughing after, because, I'm laughing because I came in to treatment with dreadlocks. Okay. And Alan Benjamin <laughs> asked me, was I, was this a religious thing? Was I West mm-hmm. Indian? And mm-hmm. he made me think about why did I have yellow dreadlocks? Mm-hmm. And the reason I had them was because if you was noticed when you copped, you get your stuff relieved quick. Mm-hmm. So Alan was like, oh, they got to go. He made me either cut them. And me being stubborn, I picked them out one by one. <laughs> and then Alan decided, your hair is a mess. You need to do something with it. Mm-hmm. I got a haircut for cutting my own hair. <laughs> and if I Alan Benjamin that. was, if you did an Alan Benjamin initial intake, mm-hmm. then you're a powerful counselor also. Because what I've learned is normally whoever your counselor was, or whoever you had interaction with, you become them. That's a compliment towards you. Well, thank you. And Alan has Alan has uh, gone on in his own right to uh, represent very well. He's a great and, man. He really is. Right? And um, I'm not sure, is he still directing Parksville? Parksville is no longer would, there's no longer Parksville. There's no, no longer, longer Parksville. So the the, the no up the up the, Springwood. So There's no houses no more. So the buildings are just sitting there empty. Well, I don't know if they're empty or not, but I know that we don't own them anymore. Okay. Well, we're going to cover that. You can believe that one. Okay. All right, I'm <laughs> going to follow you for the next two two, and I wanted to um just say that it's an awesome program. And I thank Dr. Dietrich for all that he has put into it, even with the mental health stuff, mm-hmm. because it's a learning, it's a great learning experience to know and be able to tell a client you can't sleep because your sockets are not joined back together. Give them some kind of understanding on what's going on with their body. 
And right. of course, we know that. So thank you for having us. Uh, you you have, uh, uh, I, and I know this just because you're in this, this, this particular group, but uh, you have another uh, announcement that I want you to share. Oh, did I have 18 years drug-free? That's right. Thank you so much. Oh, God. Thank you all so much. Don't make me cry. That's awesome. Well done. Yeah, that's a that's an amazing, amazing accomplishment. That that's a great you're a role model to a lot of people. And if, and if we had a and Kanye never West never if we, had a, if we had a Kanye West clip, we would have played eighteen years. Eighteen years. Oh, <laughs> that's right. Thank that's right. you. Thank you all so much. I really appreciated that. You're very welcome. Thank you very much, Catherine, for calling. Bye bye. I hear see bye-bye. you tomorrow, Thanks, right? Catherine. Come back with tomorrow. No, no, next oh, Tuesday. To, oh, next Tuesday? Okay, thank yes. you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Absolutely. Thank you, Catherine. Nice call. Yeah, I think, and I believe she called for the Monsignor Show as well. Yes, so. and she participates in the online group, um, I'm from Daytop Village. So that's how I know she was her 18th anniversary this past weekend. So I wanted her to make that public. Yeah, that's special. It's a wonderful thing to celebrate. Absolutely. And just a slight correction on your poster here. It is the Staten Island Advance. Oh, okay. From here, it looks like Almanac. Okay. Staten Island Advance. Yes, sir. And so that particular picture, which has um, pictures, I'm going to try and describe it for our audience. It has pictures of the various musical acts and comedy acts that were participating in those events that Dr. Deitch was describing. Sure. And um, one of the lead ones, if you look over this poster, this orange poster here, um, one of the lead acts, and of course, he was very prominent at the time, was Jimi Hendrix. Of course, Who yeah. kind of headlined everything. Um, so it was a big deal. And that's how they were raising money and doing all the things that he was talking about. Yeah, yeah, that's incredible. A lot of uh, outreach, uh, a lot of passion there to try and drive, you know, what it is he was working towards uh, accomplishing. So I think that that's great. Yep. 646-564-9909 is the number. 646-564-99 is the number if you want to call in. Uh, so what else on Dr. Deitch? Um, this guy's written so much. I, if I would have read his whole bio, it would have been 30 minutes. Right. Right, a lot of accolades, even just in the little brief synopsis we give here about him. uh, This is a man who is definitely well accomplished. Mm -hmm. And his, the the white paper, that's what it's officially called, the white paper that he wrote um, regarding the dilemmas of the paraprofessional and current drug abuse treatment. He dedicated it to, uh, and I'm just going to read from it, a young black professional that he met in January of 1973 who had for nine years served as best as he could with unbelievable dedication, commitment, and time, the addicts he cared so much to help. And a conversation went something like this. It said, David, I'm scared. I know I don't know it all. I'm confused and frightened. I need more training, just some time out of the trenches. I've gone to those training centers. They ain't giving up anything that I don't already have, is what he said. I can't ask for supervision in my own turf. That'll blow my image, and I'm afraid I might even cost myself my job which I'm burnt out doing, especially the way I'm doing it. But I know I can't get nothing outside of the field, nowhere else to go, at least without losing some of the material pleasures we come to enjoy. 
And so David states, you know, he was obviously tired, overworked, depressed, and frightened. In January of 1974, he died in the trenches of alcohol suicide, and his name was Kenny Williams. So he dedicated this paper to him. Wow. And again, you know, when you read it, as you go page by page, and it's written in layman's terms, I know people can write papers and they can be very, um, a lot of clinical language, but it's not written that way. Um, and so you'll find it, you'll just be, oh, wow, that's, we experienced that. We see that. Yeah, one of those one of those things that you read and all of a sudden you feel like somehow someone has been spying on you and has written a book or a paper about you in your own life. Mm-hmm. So I definitely look forward to that. Yeah. So another thing that he t- he talked about um, was that expansion period. The the boom that he yeah, was talking yeah. about when Daytop started blowing up, so to speak. Yeah. And how they you know, kind of like reached out and, and with open arms and, 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 you know, accepted other programs that were starting up and, you know, it was like sharing and, you know, building building them while they were building themselves and right. so on and so forth. And I'll tell you, he, he writes, <laughs> he does extensive writing, he writes in another paper how that eventually became the downfall too many chefs in the kitchen, exactly. so to speak. Exactly. Especially, you know, in, in New York, there were just so many programs right. that it eventually kind of squeezed Daytop. Hmm. The, I, mean, I mean, the the concept is great. You mm-hmm. know, a bunch of people working together toward a goal as opposed to being competitive with one another. Mm-hmm. But I guess I could see how that can happen when you have too many people who think their way is the right way. Uh, you know, that can cause a lot of... Uh, um, well, he, he did. He did say that it, w- right. it was significant demand. Right. It wasn't right. like they didn't have a. It wasn't a, a a supply issue. So they were really just meeting meeting the need with with all these programs starting. Even in the late 80s and the early early 90s, when you know you had all these programs that were now seated, established, and you pretty much had a choice of where to go. But still, the big names and like he used the term the senior, but the the big names were daytop. Phoenix House and sure. Samaritan Village. Sure. In 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 that order. Sure. Yeah, it could cause a lot of issues. I could see that. Well, if if you went if you left Daytop as a as a counselor and went anywhere in in New York to any other program and you said you worked at Daytop, they were hired snatch, instantly, snatching you right up, snatching you right up. That speaks volumes. That speaks volumes about the reputation they had in the community, which is great. Uh, and so I think when you go through a program that's that special and, and that powerful, that, that spreads, that spreads and people hear about that, whether they're from Daytop or not. Mm -hmm. I know before I had even heard about Daytop, I had heard people speaking about Daytop. I didn't, I had no idea what it was, but Mm -hmm. the, (laughs) it's kind of funny. The word on the street, if you will, when I was an adolescent, uh, from some people who were, you know, get, getting arrested and the judge was sending them to certain programs, getting sent to Daytop was like the death sentence. <laughs> like, you don't want to get sent to Daytop because if you go to, I mean, you'll be, they, they don't even high-five at Daytop. You're in there shaking people's hands and giving hugs, and Daytop is not the place you want to go. So the reputation was definitely out there, was definitely out there in the community, and um, and I think this is just more proof of that. The 
Well, one of the reputations that were out there was one that I've been fighting against, which was, I don't know if you've heard when they would say, at least out here on the West Coast, that daytime was a you know confrontational program. And people would say that to me, and I'd be like, where did you hear that from? Do you mean that when you say confrontational, do you mean that? Because what we do is we hold people accountable. Right. Peers hold their peers accountable. So right. confrontational to me had such a negative connotation. And, of course, some people who were considering whether or not they would come into Daytop and would hear that, oh, it's a confrontational program, you know, that would kind of sway their decision. And it took years to kind of get that reputation or that rumor that was floating out there, you know, clamped down. Yeah, remove the jacket. Yeah, that's not what we we are. But we will hold you accountable, though. Absolutely. Well, and then... For people who have never been held accountable for their behavior, that can feel very <laughs> confrontational, but their perception is not necessarily the reality. Well, well, yes. If I ask you, did you um, not make your bed this morning? That may seem confrontational. Yeah, what are you confronting me for, man? <laughs> this place is crazy. I got people asking me if I made my bed every day. Well, yeah, if you're not used to that, that can seem confrontational. I, I can understand that. Sure. But uh, make... We we emphasize making the bed as the first step. It's how you start your day. How you start your day. Um, so they expanded big time. The big boom opened the large facilities, which again he then said, you know, was a pro and con. Right. The large so Swan Lake, two hundred and fifty beds. Parksville, mm, think about one hundred and ninety or maybe two ten. Uh, large facilities. Right. Springwood, mm, maybe a hundred. Wow, and learn something new. The 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 reasoning behind that for economies of scale, okay, you know, to make the dollars work, um, and then what suffers as a result is then the the quality of treatment dilutes. Right now, being in it, you have no idea, you have no clue, you're just experiencing you know treatment. You don't know all of this stuff. Now looking back, you know. You can understand the fiscal decision to get large and house more people, um, but then you can then critically look at what would the impact of that be going from a small daytop lodge that you see up in your the picture to your to your left, right, um, to a large 250 bed facility. What's that going to do the treatment? What are we going to lose? And he named. Uh, do you remember the probe group? Did you experience that? The probe, uh, the probe group. Uh, I don't believe so, unless it was a group that changed its name no. when I experienced it, no. and then I did not experience okay. that, because the thing that I thought it may have been close to would be an extended group, but not so much. No, no. that's separate. So then you have the probe, you have the extended group, then you mentioned the marathon group. Right, okay. right. Did you have a marathon? No, but I did hear about that. I don't believe I ever heard about the probe group, but the marathon group I had heard stories of anyway. Right. Probe group maybe lasted hmm, four, five, six hours tops. Okay. You know, just spend the day. Um, it came to be, I guess, what you would when we do an extended group now, it's, you know. Eight, it's about that, eight, yeah, you know, seven, eight hours. Much seven, eight hours. But really an extended group back in the day was, we're talking 18 hours. Wow, okay. Mar- marathon, 24 to 36 hours. Right, you know, sure. So, um, I mean, my extended group that I had to as a staff trainee, uh, as you know, they're looking to see who's got the medal to be in the you know in the training program. Right, it was eighteen hours. Wow, <laughs> you know what wow. I mean? 
you got to keep some sharp focus to run a group for that long. Well, yeah, the gentleman running the group was very sharp. When you're starting with 30 people in the group, by the time the group's over, you got your, you got your 19 or 20. <laughs> <laughs> and you got 10 on the street, huh? AWOL, that's it. If this is what treatment's about, I can't do it. Well, this was for the staff training. so they're, Oh, they're, okay. They're, they're voluntarily getting up and leaving because they're like, <laughs> that's, I, must, I must not be cut out for yeah, this. Yeah. So it was like the start of boot camp. Right, right. So, under the late uh, late Eddie Hill. That's one way to weed people out, I suppose. People who are uh, actually entirely invested versus those who may be on the fence. That's a good way to figure out who's on the fence. Well, one of our callers, um, Catherine, who also went through the training program, it, it was des- designed a little bit differently than it was um, probably eight years before she went through how they did it up in the, the they have a training institute. Remember the one I told you about in Pennsylvania? Right. But, yeah, I do remember that. When when I say Pennsylvania, it seems like oh wow, that's that's a long way to go from New York to go to a training institute. When really, where from Swan Lake, it was maybe a thirty minute drive, or maybe forty five minute drive. So the you know through the back door of the Pennsylvania border, and then the facility was maybe ten minutes in. Sure. Um, but that's where they did the training, and she said that. The way they designed it in her, during her training time was that you didn't, you know, whatever the number of people, because I asked her, I said, you know, how many people were in your training class? She said 20. And I said, how many completed? She said 20, which was unusual, me hearing, because I had 20 in my class and only three completed. Right. I think I remember that. I remember hearing and that. She said, no, no one, you didn't leave. No, you didn't get out until you were ready. So um, that was a, that's a different way than what we experienced, but it all it, it served as a weeding out process. If you really weren't in it for the right reasons or your heart is not really into helping people, um, but you had other motives or other agendas, um, it did a very good job of weeding people out. A little different than the training that I experienced as well, huh? In, uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> in you, uh, 2004. Oh, yeah. You got... You <laughs> a got, couple uh, of seminars with uh, coffee breaks in between and... and uh, no, you shadow somebody for a shift and you're good to go. No, but you got you got you got the street stuff. Yeah, that's true. You got the street stuff. So uh that's why it, is it eleven years now? Uh yeah, almost. Eleven years uh, later you're still you're still in the game. So uh you can thank uh the late uh, Joe Williams and uh yes. the current uh Tony Espudo for that's, that's correct. Oh, and if it, and if we're counting from then, then we're talking about 13 years for me. Okay. So, uh, yeah, Joe and Tony, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But um, we he asked about um, OCG, which I think was uh, nice of him to to ask on what we were doing. So we got an opportunity to uh, talk about you know what we've done to the TC model to you know bring it into the new millennia and to incorporate the contemporary models. And I'm figuring when he uses the term contemporary, he's talking about the evidence-based practices right. that we meshed into the TC. Right. And so that's why when people come back and they look at it, they say, oh, this is not what you know we experienced. Well, of course it's not what you experienced. Number one, what you experienced is what you experienced. Number two, there's nothing constant but change. We always say that. So you adapt to what's required, what's needed, what you're presented with. What's current, I right. mean, how many people, let's say, back in the 90s, uh, 
had co-occurring disorders, but because we weren't focused on it, we weren't looking at that, and I'm sure that was most treatment programs. You know, Absolutely. it wasn't even uh, a consideration. And so one of the things Dr. Deitch talked about was the incorporation of mental health right. into the uh, treatment milieu. Probably scared people in the substance abuse field to hear about having to accept a Mr. client who might have mental health uh, issues. Mr. Producer, let me tell you something. It wasn't even about the clients. I remember meetings up at the Promethean Institute when, yeah. when they were just introducing you know, you know, mental health staff into Daytop. <laughs> sure. And the way they talked about them was just merciless. <laughs> sure, I can uh, imagine. Made fun of them, and 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 so the pushback against bringing you know mental health into the treatment program was significant. Heavy, but, but it had to happen. Right, it had to happen. People were going untreated. People weren't receiving the help that they needed. Right, you know. So, the, I have to say, the trailblazers, the first two people who came, who who were there, you know, took. <laughs> You know, paved the oh, way. They took a beating, they took huh? A, they took a beating and a whipping. <laughs> you know, paving the way for others who came came behind them because it it was difficult to to penetrate that. You know, the Monsignor used to use this term the Neanderthal, about the Neanderthal thinking, right? About uh, treatment, um, but they they eventually did, and they incorporated the mental health component into treatment. And I'm sure it ended up benefiting people tremendously. I can imagine so. I can imagine so because, uh, you know, when you're dealing with a client who's presenting issues and only looking at it from one angle and one, you know, and and nothing else, that's going to present an issue because that client is going to leave having learned maybe about one thing, one one set of, you know, uh, an idea or a way Mm -hmm. of doing things, go out onto the street and fail. Because there's a whole other side that was never touched or treated. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's an integral part of treatment today. So I completely agree with that. He, we, we touched briefly, he has a um, a video series that he put out, which, um, if you recall, he spoke about the what he spent, what he spent the last 20 years doing, which is looking at the brain. And what happens to the brain during, in the addiction process and in the recovery process, how the brain changes as recovery starts to take hold. Yeah, and let me give you a little bit of uh, information on what I know in regards to the brain and how it correlates to folks in recovery. What do you mean I'm not an expert? <laughs> <laughs> that would definitely be something I would just have to listen and take notes. Well, he... He talks about how the brain, as a person is going through addiction, how the brain changes, changes permanently uh, based on the severity of the addiction. So if you experience three years, four years, five years versus someone who's been in 15, 20 years, there's a significant change in the brain. And then also the the drug that you might be using. So marijuana versus methamphetamine or... You know, an opiate, or et cetera. Sure. <clears throat> and then once recovery takes hold and becomes more uh, permanent, th- how the brain recovers. 
to, sure, okay. to and to what extent the brain recovers. And again, all connected to the le- the severity of addiction and the length of addiction, etc. But that there are changes going on on both ends, you know, while in addiction and while in recovery. Okay. So uh, make sure your professors up there at uh, UC San Mateo or wherever you're going uh, cover that. Right, absolutely. So you can bring that to, to the staff meeting. Absolutely, that makes uh, that makes a lot of sense. It's a lot of work that he's done on it. Clearly, uh, and I would be interested if he does come back. Maybe you know he touches a little more on that and gets a little more in depth or detailed about that or anything really that he's written about because this was just pretty much him speaking overall about, you know, what he's experienced and where he's been, how he got to where he's at today. But he's got a lot going on. And I'm sure there's a plethora of information in just the little details or the branches, so to speak, of the things that he's looking at today or that he has looked at coming up to where he's at today. Mm-hmm. Well, we, let's talk a little bit about our next show. We're doing part one, one of three today, part two of three next Tuesday. Perfect. And uh, all focusing on the birth and the evolution. So obviously to, today we talked a little bit about the birth. Okay. The, and the infancy period of Daytop Village. The inception, if you will. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, once again, <laughs> you want to use that. Uh, I don't know what it is about you and Matt Damon, but if you want to keep using that word, go ahead. Um then there's the I, I I keep it's the expansion period I guess but you know to me there's this large period of time between like 1975 and through 1990 which you know I call like the golden golden the, era the golden era the golden age sure um, and we're gonna have a guest on next week who's gonna uh, take us through that perfect and, and what was going on in in daytop specifically and maybe in the larger context uh, of treatment. And are we going to share for our listeners who this caller is going to be or are we going to keep it a surprise for folks? Uh, it will always be a surprise. <laughs> Keeping people on the hook. Yeah. All right. Be a surprise. All right. Perfect. Um, An industry move, if you will. Yeah. And and then we'll close with, you know, where Daytop um, closed out. How do you, you know, transition sure. uh, where it stands today? And um, then we go into our regular format. Right. Yay. Yay. Now I take oh, you back yeah. to uh, 30, 30 minutes ago where it closes. I believe uh, you and Catherine were talking about empty buildings. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> empty buildings. Yeah. Uh, I don't think they're empty, but um, yeah, she, she, she hit it. But well, we're going to touch on that. Don't worry, Catherine. We're going to touch on that. Um <clears throat> But then after that, we'll get to our uh, regular format. And I can't wait. Yeah. Yeah, that's going to be awesome. Wait. We have some very interesting segments uh, that we think uh, our listeners will like. And uh, we're going to delve into certain subjects that I think people will find interesting. All connected to recovery. All connected to substance abuse treatment, addiction, etc. Um, but... We're not. We're gonna go broad, so some of it might be crazy. I don't know. Who knows? But I'm excited. I'm excited yeah. for it as well, and yeah. hopefully it'll be, you know, really interactive. We do encourage those of you out there listening to call in, especially when we get into some of those segments, because we will touch on subjects that 
are you know open to debate, open to conversation, and we definitely would love to entertain anyone who would like to call in and have a conversation about whatever it may be. So it's definitely going to be really fun, really exciting, and I certainly am looking forward to it. Well, some of the topics I've been asked to leave some meetings because of my positions. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, that's what happens when you have an opinion sometimes, you know? You have to deal with things like that. Well, we're, we're going to... Uh, what's the right word here? We're going to attack... Maybe attack is not the right word. We're going to delve into dogma. Okay, yep. And uh going to give a lot of food for thought in, about this recovery thing. Um, and, you know, people think about it a lot of different ways, do it a lot of different ways, keep it a lot of different ways, and... You know, so we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna talk about it all. But some of the the topics that we're going to discuss are have always been controversial um, because there's different modalities, different forms of treatment, and there's different dogmas that they preach that they teach. And um, in giving my seminars um, within the confines of Daytop and again and now OCG, um, I you know I don't hold anything back in terms of you know the food for thought. Sure, it's it and I always label it food for thought because it's just one man's opinion. Sure, and well we will approach it. Our approach will be fearless. Uh, not a taboo nor a pink elephant is going to stop us from talking about anything that we may bring up on on any show. So. I think that's what's going to be kind of refreshing probably to some as well because there are definitely some topics not only in this field but in any field I'm sure that are just not spoken about or they're supposed to be untouchable and we will touch the untouchable. All right. I'm going to give a free tidbit. Let's hear it. I'm ready. I had a client, as you always know while I'm minding my own business, (laughs) right? approach me and ask me, or ask me if you can talk to me, and I said sure. And now, I think, or I thought I've I've heard everything from a client, but this was a new one, and it was a very interesting one. The client said, "I wanted to talk to you to let you know that um, I'm of the Rastafarian faith." <laughs> and <laughs> I can already see where this is going. <laughs> And I wanted to talk to you and find out your thoughts about me, you know, smoking marijuana after I finished treatment. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. At least he said after treatment and not like after group or, uh, you know, uh, in the morning before before breakfast or before morning meeting. And he says he has everything. He has it written down, you know, what his thoughts are, and he would like me to read them. I said, okay. Put them in my box, and I will. I have not read them yet, um, and I don't know if he's put them in my box yet. But I, I haven't read them yet. But um, I have not heard that one. But it's a sign of the times. Sure, it's a sign of the times. It's creative. So, um, but I will address it once I read it. But we will talk about that certainly because it's subjects like that and things like that that come up, and you know, of course, with the. Certain states legalizing recreational use of marijuana. Right. And you know, over the years, I've given, I've given, I've said things in seminars in regards to, and this was said to me by one of my trainers way back when, uh, Felix Arroyo, 
and I never forgot it, and I use and I use it today. Drop he, it on us. He said two things. In your, he says, I want you to get to a point in your recovery where you can be stuck in an elevator, okay, with fifteen people doing whatever your drug of choice was, and it wouldn't phase you one bit. It wouldn't impact or dictate what you do. You would just be aware of what's going on around you. That's where I want you to be. And so I've always told people the same thing. That's the same analogy I've used. Then he also said, you know, marijuana smells real good. Okay. And so when I'm walking down the streets of Manhattan and someone might be walking in front of me smoking the joint, sometimes I say to myself, wow, that smells real good. That does not mean, however, that I want to smoke marijuana, use marijuana, etc. Right. And I'm paraphrasing him. I'm just acknowledging that, oh, that smells good. Right. And that's it. There's nothing else to add to it, nothing else to make of it. It's just an, an acknowledgement that you're making to yourself, and it doesn't mean that, oh my goodness, that I want to do that. It's it's not too much deeper than just what it is. It smells good. That was his point. That was his point. <laughs> right. Well, and that's, a, and that's a great point. And funny, obviously, being from an era back then where you go ahead and like a phase three group or something, coming back from a home pass, say that you were walking behind someone smoking a joint and it smelled good to you, and you watch yourself catch a you, confrontation oh, yeah. for two hours before you know it, you're dropping guilt. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> ten people will be all over you. <laughs> so yeah, I guess I, from what I pick up from that, and obviously I'm hearing it through you, is just kind of like a human approach to the situation. Like you know, it is what it is. This is how the world functions, and just because you have chosen not to do something doesn't mean you can't make a basic acknowledgement and go on about living your life. It doesn't mean anything more than that. You got to live in the world, right? That's right. Um, you're going to see certain things, experience certain things. Certain things are going to trigger certain memories, right? It's also going to be one of our topics. Right. Excellent. How people confuse uh, memories, feelings, etc. Sure. Sure. And sometimes I have to ask people to be to get more, you know, I have to to clarify when they say, "Oh, you know, I was in the van and we were driving so and so, and I saw some, I saw a place where I used to hang out." And it made me feel like this. And I then have to ask a clarifying question. I said, did it bring back a memory of something or did you feel something? And they right. said, oh, no, 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 it, this reminds me of when I was, oh, okay, so it was a memory. I said, there's nothing in the world that's going to take that away. Every time right. you drive past that liquor store, you're gonna, it's going to remind you yeah, that's of, right. of, of something you might have been doing at that liquor store. That's right. That's and that's, right. And that's all it is. It's a memory. Yeah, and it speaks to uh, a very solid point that is usually brought up to folks who are phasing out or, you know, going out of a residential treatment and back into the real world, that the world that you left has not changed. You're going to be entering the world. It's going to be the same as you left it. You are going to be the one that has to approach things differently. And so I think that all speaks to that as well. I, I don't know if we do a good enough job at that, though, as people are exiting out. Um Reminding them of this? Oh, yeah, reminding them of that, reminding them that, you know, you've lived in the bubble. Right. You know, a surreal environment. Um, there are no encounter groups. 
know, <laughs> yeah, you can't drop a slip on your boss. Exactly. <laughs> um, and so, you know, impulse control and all of those things come into play. Um, and, you know, sometimes I give away the secrets to people about some of the methods behind the madness. You know, like, you know, why do I got to go to the front desk and announce I'm going to the bathroom? You know, what's what's that for? Right. And, you know, so I tell them, I'm not going to say on our show today because that's giving away one of our topics. Okay. <laughs> but, um, you know, we, we, get in, we get into why we have people do all of these little things, why they're so important. And when we then make the connection to outside the real world, then they begin to understand right. that, oh, now I get it. And when, right. And when that light bulb comes on, that's very gratifying to see someone when they really get it. Yeah, and usually it is a moment that happens at you know at least what I've seen for some people it happens instantaneously, and it's almost the second it happens you can see the change in the person almost immediately, mm-hmm. and it's like I get it now, full speed ahead at this point, and you just absorb everything like a sponge, and you know that's usually when people hit that hit that turning point. It happens pretty quickly, and it is very gratifying. It's incredibly gratifying. And also, I know we're running up on on our time here, but also what happens is when it does happen, by the way, it's an internal thing, right? Absolutely. It's an internal thing, almost, dare I say, a spiritual thing, okay? You know it, okay? And you do not even have to tell anyone. That's why I tell the client that when, when, when someone's walking around doing a lot of talking about, you know, you know, I've got it now. I understand blah, blah, blah. I think usually the other ones you haven't gotten it. That's a flag. <laughs> okay, that's, that's, yeah, that's a red flag. Right. Okay. But you know internally when, when that light bulb has come on and that you've made that, that commitment and that switch. And you don't have to announce it to anybody. You just know it's happened. Right. You just start behaving or operating from a different point of view. Mm-hmm. And, and that's literally how it takes place. And it's like you said, it's a very special, powerful moment, not only for the individual, but like you said, for the staff that are working with the individual or the counselor, it's pretty awesome. Excellent. All right. That's the end of our show today. Uh, thanks to all who called and participated. Thanks to Dr. Deitch again for being our special guest. And um, this is Roach on Recovery. Perfect. We will. Uh, we look forward to seeing you guys next Tuesday. And uh, thanks all who called in or listened today. That's our show for this evening. Thank you for listening. Be sure to listen to our next broadcast Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG radio. Like us, friend us, and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash OCG Work CA and on Twitter at OCG Work CA. You can listen to podcasts of all our shows on iTunes under Roach on Recovery or on our Blog Talk Radio homepage. This has been a presentation of OCG Recovery Radio.
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.